Hey, you're listening to Clumsy Theosis, a Catholic podcast that explores topics within the Catholic faith to help us deepen our spiritual lives, own our relationship with the Lord, and strengthen His church. Hey, what's up? Welcome to the Clumsy Theosis podcast. My name is Rochelle Lucero, and I'm the host. Right now, we are currently in the middle of a series on salvation history. This is episode number four. If you're not caught up, that's fine. You can start listening now and go back to the other ones later. That's totally fine. Salvation history is a term that you are going to hear a lot in Catholic scripture studies, and it is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a history of salvation that's documented in the Bible from Adam to Jesus. It's the story of God's presence in human history from the beginning and his purpose, which is to bring us to himself, to bring us into his family. When I think about salvation history, I picture an action-packed thriller of scripture, really. Now, every episode of this series, we cover one of the six key figures in salvation history, the covenants that God made with them and the meaning of that covenant. Why are we doing this? Well, I'm glad you asked. I just think it's important for one, for everyone to know the overarching plan and plot and key figures in salvation history in scripture. And I also think it's encouraging when you know the history of salvation and the key players and the key events. It encourages you more to read the scripture. The Bible doesn't look so daunting just sitting there on your table collecting dust. Now you kind of have an idea what's going on. And so you're more apt to pick it up and pray with it, and let the words of our Lord just really influence your life. So that's the purpose of this series. And um, this week, we're going on to Abraham. Last week, we did Noah. And I also mentioned that we were possibly going to cover how God expands his family with every single covenant, but I'm not going to do that. One, I think it'll just be too much information for one episode. And two, we still have covenants to go through, so it doesn't make sense for me to talk about those covenants and how they expand God's family when we haven't actually gone into those covenants yet. You know what I mean? All right. So I hope you understand that judgment call. In our last episode, when we were talking about Noah, we focused on how God's covenant with Noah was a redemptive renewal of the failed covenant that he had made with Adam. And we compared the two covenants and identified where God had made adjustments to the second covenant, which is the one that he made with Noah. And he did this because he was taking man's fallen nature into account. And we went into how This shows God's, his mercy and his forgiveness and his ability to work with humanity, right? And that's in Genesis chapter nine. And that's where we ended because I didn't want to end on a low note. I wanted to end the last episode on a high note and I didn't want to talk about the fall of Noah, but we have to talk about it. So let's get that out of the way now. If you read chapter nine of Genesis, you would have read the covenant that God made with Noah. At the end of that chapter, you also would have read that Noah and his three sons, his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they settled and Noah planted a vineyard. He made wine from his vineyard. He drank it, got drunk, and then his son Ham saw his nakedness. Then all of a sudden you're seeing that Ham is now being cursed. Shem is being blessed. Japheth is being enlarged and he's being promoted to live in the house of Shem. And then Ham's descendants, which are going to be the Canaanites, they are going to be the slaves of Shem and Japheth. And you might be like, what just happened? 
Well, to see your father's nakedness does not mean that you happened to walk in on him when he was taking a shower. No, it means to sleep with your father's wife, okay? And um, in this case, it was Noah's son sleeping with Noah's wife. So you do the math there, okay? That was a grievous sin, and for that reason, Noah cursed Ham's descendants. And why his descendants? Because they were the offspring of such an unholy union. You see what I'm saying? All right. When you continue in scripture, in Genesis 10, you read about the seven nations of the earth, which are all going to be the descendants of Noah. Seven? Did I say seven? I meant 70. All right. And then when you move on to Genesis 11, we read about the Tower of Babel. And this is how the people of the earth lost God's favor. In Genesis 12... We read about how the people got God's favor back, and it was through a descendant of Shem, the son of Noah, who was blessed, and that descendant is Abram, who will later be renamed Abraham, okay? But before we immerse ourselves in this story of Abraham, this is the part in the show where we take a moment and do a air high five to our most recent donor to the Clumsy Theosis podcast. This show is 100% listener supported, so all of our donors are extremely important. Our most recent donor is Richard, so... High five, Richard. Thank you for being a donor. So to all my listeners out there, if you have found that Clumsy Theosis has been a benefit to you in any way, I would like to invite you to consider donating. If you want to go ahead and do that, head over to clumsytheosis.net and click the word donate in the menu. And remember, you can donate monthly and get merchandise and resources in return, or you can just make a one-time donation. That's now an option as well. All right. Back to Abraham and his story, which I feel is kind of long. Abraham's story was very difficult for me to read a lot of times until I learned about salvation history because I remember reading it and thinking, oh my gosh, this is so redundant. Oh my gosh, can I just skim through this? Okay, because I don't have the patience for stories that seem like they're not going anywhere. And that's kind of how I felt with this. You know, I wanted to like skip through so much of it until I saw how much greatness is in the details of his story. His story goes from Genesis 12, I think technically until Genesis like 24 or 25, but the last covenant that God makes with him is in Genesis 22. But still, that's a lot of chapters to be talking about one guy. I mean, one guy who isn't Jesus, of course. I also remember trying to read the story of Abraham and being like, dude, he does some really dumb things. You know, like sleeping with his wife's handmaiden at her request. He does some other dumb things too. And I mean, that's really hard for me to follow a character that I'm just like, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Don't run up the stairs, you know? Um, You know, for all of those horror movies where they just run up the stairs. Anyways, um, I digress. Yet, Abraham is referred to as the father of faith. And as you read his story, you might be like, this guy does not have faith in the Lord because he keeps trying to do things himself and take control of situations. But yeah, I think that's the beauty of this story. In his relationship with the Lord, he learns how to have faith in God. He learns how to trust God. And that is something that I can relate to very deeply and personally. And I don't think that I'm alone in that. Remember when I said that it seems like the story of Abraham, there's a lot of redundancy, like God's telling Abraham the same thing over and over for like 10 chapters? Well, that is kind of true. What happens is in Genesis 12, when 
God first calls Abraham, he gives him a promise and it's a threefold promise, right? So there's three parts to this promise. And as their relationship unfolds, God takes each part of that promise and he elevates it to a covenant oath at three separate times. So you're going to hear at least four times God seems like he's saying the same thing to Abraham, but that's because he's building this promise into one huge covenant. And please forgive me if I call Abram Abraham. You know that at this point in the story, he is referred to as Abram. Okay, sorry if I slip up. But when God first calls Abram out into the desert in Genesis 12, this is the promise that he gives him. And these are the three things. I'll try to emphasize them as I read it to you. He tells him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make for you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who curses you, I will curse. And by you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? So the three things are a great nation, a great name, and the third, which I think is probably the most important, but the most often um, underplayed by you know readers, is that he will be a blessing to others. His descendants will be the source of blessings to others. Okay, that is, I think, the point of the other two parts of this promise to Abram. Now, after God calls him, he gives him this promise. I mean, lots of stuff happens. We have some funny business with Pharaoh. He enters into the War of the Kings. We hear about his nephew Lot, and then he gets a blessing by Melchizedek, which is really freaking awesome if you ask me. God pops in here and there to remind Abram of his promise because Abram's like, what's going on? God, you promised me these things. I don't see them. And, you know, Abram, he wants himself some reassurance. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Give me some of that too, God. You know, I I feel that way too. I totally get where he's coming from. And God does give him some reassurance. In Genesis 15, we read about what is referred to as a covenant between the pieces, Right. God tells Abram, he says, get a bunch of animals together, lay them out on the ground in like a line, cut them all in half. All of a sudden it gets dark and then this torch and this fire pot appear in the air and they just like move up and down between the cut pieces of the animals. And you read this and you're like, what is happening? I do not understand this voodoo witch doctor magic going on right now. Um Like I said, this is referred to as covenant between the pieces. This is actually a uh, covenant-making ritual that was very common. And what's interesting, you wouldn't say that you make a covenant. In Hebrew, you would say that you cut a covenant, like you're literally cutting something because when you cut something, it bleeds, right? And the blood has these twofold uh, um, significance. First is that, you know, blood makes you family, you know, like your blood brothers, um, either literally, or, you know, you you became blood brothers with someone as a child, you know. Um, In my day, it was ketchup brothers and ketchup sisters because, you know, mixing blood is a a no-no. But you get the point. And the second second reason is because what you're saying when, when you cut something in a covenant is you're saying that I will have my blood shed if I break this covenant. Now, typically in this ritual, you would walk between the cut pieces. Both parties would walk between the pieces because you're saying what happened to these animals that I'm walking through will happen to me as well. And I am okay with that. 
But if you notice in the story, Abram never walks through the pieces. The torch and the fire pot go through the pieces, and fire is uh, symbolic of God in the scriptures, and so that's God's presence. God is going up and down between the pieces. He is basically saying that, you know, if I break this covenant, then let this happen to me. Of course, with the unseen God, this can't technically happen. So this is what we refer to as divine condescension. God is condescending and coming down to human level, um, engaging in a ritual that is understood on the human level. And even though, you know, he is God Almighty, he is he is taking on the responsibility. He is not requiring that Abram walk through those pieces. So he God himself is taking on the responsibility. He's condescending so much when he makes this covenant with Abram. And so what is the point of this covenant? What what is God doing here? Well, in Genesis 15:18, we hear we read this. It says, "On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river of the Euphrates, to the land of and he names 10 other peoples, which I'm not going to try to pronounce all of those nationalities. So basically he's giving him a lot of land. And he's basically giving him descendants. And you're going to need a lot of descendants to inhabit all of this land. So a lot of land plus a lot of descendants. If you do that biblical math, you're basically going to end up with a great nation, which was the first thing God promised in Genesis 12, verse 2. All right. I need to take a breather. I'm getting so excited here that I'm not breathing in between my words. Um, So what just happened here? Yeah, God just um, elevated that first part of the threefold promise to a covenant. All right. But Abram, you know what? He still wants a son. He's been griping on about how he does not have a son. So even though God just made this covenant with him, Abram is going to take things into his own hands. And in Genesis 16, enter polygamy once again. So Sarai, Abram's wife, suggests that Abram sleep with Hagar, which is her handmaiden, and Hagar can bear him a son, which she does, and his name is Ishmael. Okay, this is dumb, and we all know it's dumb. Yet, how many times have I taken things into my own hands and tried to basically play God in my own life, even though I know God has already promised me something, especially in the vein in which I'm already trying to take things into my own hands, all right? Yeah, pot calling the kettle black over here. So this happens really quickly. And then all of a sudden in Genesis 17, we hear God say, I will make a covenant with you. And God tells Abram that his descendants will be kings. Now, in Old Testament lingo, this implies that your name is going to be great because your descendants will be great. Okay, so this is the second promise from Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, which was to have a great name. So this great name promise is elevated now to a covenant. And I just think this is really clever. When this great name promise is elevated to a covenant, Abram and Sarai are given new names. Uh, They are now going to be Abraham and Sarah. But I do want to point out the elephant in the room right now. Um, Abram went to polygamy, having a a child with another woman that he's not married to, and now God is, like, blessing him with this covenant. Like, is he being rewarded for doing something that we know to be wrong? 
Okay, well, you have to have a critical eye when you read the biblical text uh, because the Bible shows a lot. It tells you sometimes, it tells you point blank, but there's a lot of showing in the story. And right before God makes the covenant with Abram, he tells him, walk before me and be blameless. Basically, God is saying, you are not blameless right now and you need to you know, get your act together, hop to, walk in front of me, and you need to get on the right path again. Right? So he's rebuking him. Okay, so you have to be critical when you read scripture. Something else that I think is kind of clever is the sign of this covenant is circumcision. So in order for God to fulfill his part of this covenant, Abram and all his people must be circumcised first. And the reason that I say this is clever, because circumcision happens on a part of the body, which is the part of the body that um, Abraham used in order to kind of turn his back on God and take things into his own hands. You know, the way he fell is now the sign of the covenant. So every time, you know, yeah, you get it. Um, That is one explanation for why circumcision. Um, Another is um, to say that, like, yes, if I break this covenant, then let me be cut off and killed the way that this skin has been cut off and killed. But I like the first explanation better. Just saying. At this point in Abraham's story, his wife, Sarah, finally bears him a son, Isaac. And, you know, there's some tension. Ishmael versus Isaac, Sarah versus Hagar. It's it's some drama, right? Um, And this is because of polygamy and how it's problematic in many ways. And as we keep reading, we learn that Hagar and her son Ishmael are sent off out in the desert. And a lot of people get really upset about this point in the story. On the one hand, I completely agree. My heart hurts a little bit. You know, this is a crappy situation. But when you step back and you notice, okay, this is one of those instances where the Bible is showing us that something is wrong rather than just coming out and telling us. You know, this is a very clear critique against polygamy. You know, polygamy is wrong and it's sinful and it doesn't just stop with itself. You know, there's a trickle-down effect that happens that hurts other people. And uh, I think it's very clear. So I get that this is upsetting. On the other hand, God promises to take care of Ishmael and Hagar. And it's not like, yeah, I promise to make sure that you're going to have like bread and water. You're not going to be eaten by wolves. No, it's a it's a big promise. Like princes are going to come from his line. He's going to be well off, well established. You know, he's going to have it together. He won't have his father, though, which we know bad news. Up until this point, God has only elevated two of the three promises that he made to Abraham to covenant status. Now, in Genesis 22, we hear how God elevates the third promise to a covenant. But before God does it, he tests Abraham and he tests him by asking him to do what? To sacrifice his only begotten son, right? Talk about difficult, right? But he does. In faith, he does. He follows the Lord. But does God really want Abraham to murder his son? No, it's a test. And it's not just a test for Abraham. It's also a test for Isaac. Okay, now think about this. When you picture this scenario, most people picture Isaac as a young child or maybe even a toddler, like four to six years old. And that's because we have seen this depicted in religious art. And something in our brain makes us think that this is a factual representation rather than an artistic representation. 
Now, if someone were to read the text critically, you would notice that between the two of these men, and they are men, even though one's a much younger man, one is stronger than the other. Now, the one who is carrying all of this wood up this mountain for like a whole day, that's going to be the one who's the most able-bodied, correct? And who is doing that? It's Isaac. It's not Abraham. So when it comes time for Isaac to be bound and laid on the pyre, it's not as though Abraham would be able to overpower him and tie him up against his will. No, Isaac would have had to willingly allow this to happen. Abraham's only begotten son, Isaac, willingly allowed himself to be sacrificed. Now, that should sound familiar to us, right? And that's why I've heard it said that Genesis 22 is the Calvary of the Old Testament. Why? Because on Calvary, God's only begotten son, Jesus, right? He carried wood up a mountain and freely submitted himself to death, right? Just like Isaac did. So this is an interesting tidbit here. St. John wrote about this in his gospel, and to the Jewish reader or hearer, they would have totally put this together. Now, in the most famous scripture verse ever, John 3, 16, St. John says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. The word only begotten, that would have been written in Greek, right, in St. John's gospel, that word is monogenous, okay? Now, the uh, translation from that Greek word, to Hebrew would be Yahid. Now, Yahid is a very rare word in Hebrew, but you know what? It's used three times in the Old Testament, and all three of those times are in Genesis 22. So there is a very obvious connection between Isaac and Jesus that St. John wants to call our attention to, which is that Jesus is a new Isaac. Right. So at the time of the binding of Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac, it was just as much a test for Abraham as it was for Isaac. Not only was it a test for both of them, it was an invitation for them as well to enter into the Paschal mystery, which Jesus would enact later on. And God can do that, right, because he's outside space and time. Now, obviously, both Abraham and Isaac, they pass their test. They accept the invitation. They prove that they are not only worthy, but they're capable of the self-sacrificial love to carry out that third promise, which was to be a blessing to the nations, right? And so God's going to elevate that third promise now to a covenant. Man, that is just so beautiful that the biggest, the biggest blessing that God can give them is one in which requires them to be capable of self-sacrificial love. That is just so deep and makes me feel like I have so much more growing to do before I can be that holy. We can read what God says to Abraham when he enacts this um, third covenant with him or this third part of the covenant in Genesis 12 verses 15 to 18. But I just want to focus in on verse 18 where the Lord says, By your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Some translations render descendants as seed, and seed could be taken as plural or singular. And in this case, it's actually a both and. Shocker, right? Uh, it's, it's a both and. When taken to mean the plural, it refers to Israel and how Israel is supposed to bless other nations. And they've always been intended to do that. 
And when we look at it singularly, it can mean one specific descendant, which would be Jesus. By his passion, death, and resurrection, he has conquered death and is a blessing to the whole world. And like I said before, this third part of the covenant that God makes with Abraham, this is what it's all about. You know, having the great nation and having the great name, it was all for the purpose of bringing blessings to others. You know, it's like with great power comes great responsibility. As we head into Lent, which is next week, and I can't believe that it's already here. But as we head into Lent, I think we should all meditate on that and examine our hearts and examine our prayer intentions because God wants to bless us. You know, he wants to give us the desires of our hearts, but his blessings, they're not meant to be contained, right? So whenever he blesses us with something, it's intended to act like ripples in a pond. You know, when you throw a stone in a pond, there's a lots, there's lots of ripples that grow and expand. And that's what's supposed to happen with our blessings. They're supposed to expand and reach beyond ourselves and bless other people. In this time of preparation for Lent and even through Lent, we can ask ourselves, how are we using our blessings to bless other people and also examine our prayer intentions themselves? Are they self-serving? And if they are, that's okay for now, because now you have the opportunity to ask the Lord to show you how your petitions, when they're fulfilled, how you will be able to use them to bless other people. If you'd like to share what the Lord reveals to you with me, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest also. You could send me a private message or just comment on this post. In the future, if you would like to have episodes emailed to you, I could totally do that. You just need to sign up for the email. And there is a link down in the show notes for you to do that. And I'll send you an email once a week which through Lent, I will try to include some additional resources that I think will help you guys on this journey to the cross. Tune in next week as we go over Moses. Moses, Moses. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments movie starring Charlton Heston, you will totally know where that's from. Until next week, my friend, peace out. Thank you for tuning in to Clumsy Theosis. I'm so happy that you've been able to hang out. If you want to learn more about Clumsy Theosis, you are more than welcome to visit my website, clumsytheosis.net. From clumsytheosis.net, you will also be able to contact me if you're interested in booking me as a speaker or if you're just feeling generous and you'd like to make a donation. Remember that together we can transform the world by letting the Lord transform us.